0: We look at the story. So we look at how the different parts are related to one another. It is a bit of an art. And it's not always the case that working on a dream reveals this clear sense of what it is. Jung talked about, I don't know that he used this word, but he did talk about the aha moment. So if you're working on a dream with your analyst, or maybe with someone else, or even just on your own, and you come to this understanding of like, oh, that's what it's about. You can sort of feel it in your body like a click. So it's a slow process. It's a kind of recursive process where you you look at the images from many different ways. You may amplify the images with material from myths or fairy tales. That can sometimes open something right up and you can really understand something at a deeper level and then and then you know that this is a dream that's informed by the collective unconscious welcome to therapist uncensored building on decades of professional experience this podcast tackles neurobiology modern attachment and more in an honest way that's helpful in healing humans your session begins now with dr ann kelly and sue marriott
1: Hi, everyone. I'm Anne, and we have the honor of having two union analysts in our studio today. Super glad we have Lisa Marciano and Deborah Stewart. And together with a friend of theirs, Joseph Lee, they produce a podcast called This Union Life. And I've asked them on the show today because Sue and I want to do a series. I don't know if we're going to do a series, we're going to do a few Episodes on dreams. And no one I could think of better to get on our show and talk about dreams than a union analyst. So I'm very happy. Thank you, too, for coming to the show. And for those of you, our audience out there that might not even know what it means to be
2: a union analyst, maybe
1: I could start there. Tell us a little bit about your training that is unique.
2: Well, it takes me back in time a long, long time ago when I decided that I did want to be a Jungian analyst and I had no idea what it was I was really signing up for. Jungian training is marked by the length of time that it takes because it's not just an intellectual pursuit. We have to be in our own personal analysis and supervision and a local training seminar, which is where I met Lisa and Joseph in the Philadelphia Jung Seminar, and as part of this uh, nation and uh, North America-wide society called the Interregional Society of Jungian Analysts. So in a way, it's just uh, dedicating your life, a lot of it, to a process that is personal as well as intellectual. And I often say I wouldn't have missed it for the world, and I wouldn't do it again for the <laughs> world either, because we work so much and learn so much and experience so much of the unconscious. Oh, wow. So, Lisa, you add to what I've said.
0: Well, Jung was a colleague of Freud's. Jung was born in 1875, so he was quite a bit younger than Freud. And they had this kind of legendary friendship. And Freud kind of anointed Jung as the crown prince who was going to take over the field of psychoanalysis after Freud passed on. But then Jung had some ideas of his own. So like Freud, he believed in the unconscious and that it was incredibly powerful in terms of shaping our motivation in ways that we're not always conscious of. But he saw the unconscious really differently from Freud. So Freud felt like the unconscious was the repository for things that had never really made it to consciousness or perhaps had been forgotten or repressed. And Jung said, yes, it's all of that. And it can also be the birthplace of startling new ideas And the unconscious, the personal unconscious connects us with the collective unconscious, this sort of stratum that undergirds all of us that connects us through the realm of archetypal imagery. So Jung is uh, famous for giving us words like introversion and archetype concepts like shadow, collective unconscious synchronicity these might be terms that you've heard he kind of created his own way of understanding the psyche and dreams were an incredibly important part of it so dreams Jung felt were symbolic and they show us what the unconscious thinks of how we're doing in the world so in Jungian training there is like Deb said a lot of personal work there's a lot of time spent reading myths and fairy tales because these are eternal images that show us universal patterns. And there's a lot of time studying dreams. Uh, it reminds
1: me of just being completely taken with Joseph Campbell's work in the power of myth and really, really learning about the perspective of the collective unconscious, the power of the story that is there for all of us. I have heard one of you say, I'm not quite sure. It's that dreams can vividly help us remember and unpack that that we are struggling with. That also can lead us in a path. And that's what I loved about what you just said, Lisa, about the distinction between Freud and Jung and looking forward. It's such a positive direction. It's our potential. It's not just our pathology. And dreams are a big window to that. How do you guys use dreams in your work with clients? Deborah, what are your thoughts?
2: Well, I'm thinking about what Lisa just said and Jung's discovery that we have a personal unconscious and this collective unconscious that's common across cultures all the way back in time. So we need to work with that and our. Best and most ready access is through dreams because everybody dreams. I think there are a few recorded extremely rare exceptions, but everybody dreams several times a night. And the dream maker sees things very differently from the way our conscious waking ego sees things. And so it is important to include that perspective that we're not aware of during our waking life. Mm-hmm. What are your thoughts, Lisa?
0: I mean, I, I liked what you said about sort of are we looking back and just kind of noticing where we came from or are we facing forward? And Jung very much said that dreams can help us do both. Dreams sometimes point to the past and say, look, you know, here's the genesis of the problem. You can always, almost use dreams diagnostically in that sense. But Jung also believed very strongly that dreams help us look forward, that they can point toward surprising new developments, and sometimes they can act as a warning. He said someplace that dreams are not, he wouldn't consider these dreams prophetic. They're more like a a good weather forecast or a medical diagnosis. The unconscious is looking at patterns. The unconscious is reading the environment. It's noticing what you're doing. And then it might say to you, you know, if you keep on doing that thing, you could have a problem. So a lot of times we might have warning dreams like that. But also dreams point us to the telos of the psyche. And this is this Greek word that means end, but it was very important to Jung. One of the kind of critical ideas of Jung is that we each come into the world with a sort of inherent blueprint and that it is our sort of psychological mission to fill out as much of that blueprint as we possibly could. The Jungian analyst James Hillman talked about the acorn, that we all come into the world as an acorn and we've got all of the information to become an oak tree. And we're each, of course, going to be our our own oak tree. We're not going to be exactly alike. So there's a sense that the guiding center of the personality that Jung called the self has this idea about where we're going. And we are often not conscious of that. We may even think the conscious personality may think, I'm going somewhere else. But the guiding center of the personality may have other ideas And a lot of times that sense of telos shows up in a dream and it can kind of point the way forward.
1: So I think what I hear you saying is that with the acorn description, it's like that we all have this great potential to become our full person. Yes, And in our journey to that full person that we want to listen to, our more unconscious self, not just our more present conscious self, because I guess we all have a lot of defenses. We talk about that on the podcast, we have all sorts of ways or things that have happened to us are both in our own ancestral history, as well as our own personal history that may block us. And that by listening to ourselves in the dreams in the unconscious process, we get information about that.
2: Am, Am I hearing you accurately? We get information that we need to know. And sometimes it comes up in really sort of paradoxical ways because the unconscious speaks in what Jung called a really archaic language of image and symbol and pictures and especially feeling. You know, so we often bring our conscious perspective to a dream, you know, such as uh, somebody pursuing. I was walking down a road and I could tell that somebody was coming along behind me and I could hear the footsteps and I ran as fast as I could and got somewhere safe. We wake up and we go, oh good, that's great, I, I escaped. Oh, I hate those dreams. But the question is, wait a minute, building on what Lisa said, that the psyche is purposive, it's going somewhere, wants to tell you something that you need to know. You know, we might say, wait a minute, what is pursuing you? It's very easy to just say, wow, that was terrible. What an awful dream. But there is a meaning and a purpose behind it. And people very often have dreams like this of being chased or someone, a stranger knocking on the door or, you know, being stopped uh, while driving in a car. And so where is the meaning in that? What else do you need to know to be able to incorporate that into consciousness that the ego is defended against and images as a pursuer? In order to fulfill a little bit more, step by step, that innate plan for, you know, growing another branch on your metaphorical oak tree. (laughs) (laughs) How hard is that in
1: session for people to be able to be open to that? If it's something that they've like, ah, I'm so glad to get away from it. And you're saying,
2: whoa, slow down. What's chasing you? It's a relief. is it? Sure. Oh, so that's what it is. Okay. So, you know, sometimes even if it's sad or difficult feeling, it's a relief to have it known because it was there anyway. It's, it's not as if it's just not there. And if you avoid it, you can live happily ever after. These things that are in our unconscious and are often our, our shadows, those things we don't want to know, and we don't want to feel, they take energy, you know, so it's just a question of, do you want to keep it suppressed in the unconscious? Or would you like to uh, kind of know it and let it have a seat at the table?
0: You know, I I really appreciate that both of you mentioned defenses, because, you know, that's something that Jung didn't really talk about. That was very much Freud's concept. But I think that is such an important way to think about the psyche. The longer I do this work, the more I find myself thinking in terms of what are we all defending against. And most of the time, most of us spend a lot of time defending against unpleasant feelings, unpleasant emotions. And I think I'm going to use a dream example, Anne, that will Lift up what you were just speaking with Deb about, and I'm. It's actually Joseph's dream, and I don't think he'll mind me sharing it because uh, he just told me the story again, so it's very fresh in my mind. And he's spoken about it a couple of times on the podcast. So he was a young man, and he had a business as an Alexander Technique teacher, and his psyche at that time. You know, he had his defenses, as do we all. And part of his defensive structure was that he was a kind of a very spiritual person. And I mean, I think that was true. And it also, by Joseph's admission, kind of served a defensive function for him at that time, that kind of being in that sort of spiritual mindset. So here was the dream. He he was in his 20s. He lived in this apartment. And in the dream, he's in his bed in his apartment. And someone walks up the stairs and he wakes up, you know, terrified in the dream, sees the man at the top of the stairs. In the dream, he reaches into his nightside table, pulls out a gun and shoots him, and the man falls back down the stairs. Joseph actually did not own a gun, but there was always a gun in his dream nightside table. And this dream happened again and again and again. Joseph told me eventually it was happening every night. So he actually had a friend who was a Jungian analyst, and he told her about the dream, and she said, why don't you do an act of imagination? So he kind of intuitively dropped back into the dream in his imagination, and this time when the man came up the stairs, instead of shooting him, Joseph said, what are you here to teach me? And the man said, I'm so glad you asked me that. Let's go for a walk. So in his imagination, Joseph went for a walk with this man who had been coming up the stairs every night in his dream. And the man talked to him for a long time. And and he said, in essence, it, it was very moving to hear Joseph say this even just a few weeks ago, and it's many, many decades since he had the dream. He said, you have to take from life what you need. And Joseph got, you know, he had this business, he was not doing any advertising, he was not doing any marketing, he wasn't really keeping his books, he was barely making enough money to pay the bills. After he had his uh, imaginary walk with his dream figure, he started a mailing list. He started sending out mailings before he came into town for different events. And in a year, he had doubled his small income. So I think there it is, because the ego was defended against this information that you needed to be a little more savvy and businesslike, because the ego was invested in this idea of being a very spiritual person who doesn't need to worry about you know filthy lucre. <laughs> but uh, <laughs> but we all got to eat, you know, and and so uh, you know he was in this mindset that was defensive. That was keeping him from really living. Wow,
1: I love that story. And there's so much to it that you like the thought of maybe him having to even find his own internal aggression to be able to get out there in the world. So he's like shooting this back and shooting it back. But he had to have his own internal aggression to be able to get out and say, like, I can be this person and make money. So, at least in that story, you've integrated dream, but also imagination. Is that a common way that you guys work with dreams when you work in session to interwoven the the analysis with imagination?
2: Absolutely, because we have to really sort of sink into the dream. It's not enough to just, you know, sort of think about it of like, oh, well, then this probably means that. It has to be accompanied by, your own experience in the session or in active imagination, a term that Lisa just used. You know, how do we lower our threshold of consciousness enough so that we can have a living experience of what the dream maker has sent? So sometimes people can dream the dream on. Joseph did it in active imagination. You. You close your eyes, you imagine the dream, you sink into the dream, and what Jung said in a letter to Mr. O is, just close your eyes and select an image. For instance, that yellow mass that was in your dream last week, this was Mr. O, and wait until it moves by itself. And when I first read that many years ago, I went like, okay, Dr. Jung, you're on. And I went outside, and by golly, that's what happens. And in a session, feelings come up, or you can ask the person to, you know, to uh, sort of really imagine himself or herself as a character in the dream. And what happens next, and how does it feel? So that it's a a lived experience and not just a rarefied sort of code-breaking endeavor.
0: And one of the things that's true about dreams is that we tend to ally with the attitude of the dream ego. So Joseph likely woke up from that dream and thought, God, who was that guy trying to break in? That was really scary. I'm really glad I shot him. So our first take usually when we have a dream is to be in alignment with the ego attitude, but the new thing that's come to show us something is almost always not the ego in the dream, not the I in the dream. So oftentimes we feel frightened or angry or crossed in some way by some element of the dream, and it's very likely that that's where the juicy stuff is, so active imagination, like what Deb was saying, is this experiential way of getting behind that defensiveness of the ego that wants to just ally with what we already know, you know, that the guy coming up the stairs must be bad. If you can drop into an imagination, you may have this experience of, you know, the guy walking up the stairs as this person who's there to help you and show you something. But you know, every week on the podcast, we we spend the first half of the podcast talking about a topic, any number of topics from a Jungian perspective. And then we always interpret a listener's dream. So our listeners can uh, submit a dream to the podcast, and then I pick a dream every Monday morning, and the three of us go at it. And it, it is possible to a lot of times come to an understanding of the dream without active imagination as well. And you can hear us kind of walk around the dream symbolically. You uh, can hear how we do that on the podcast.
1: Oh, that I, I did hear you a couple of times and I really enjoyed that. And I found myself curious. So a lot of times when dream work is happening in therapy, it's associated with what's going on for that individual in their life. And when they're sending you the dream, You don't have that context. You're just hearing the dream. So what are you going on when you're analyzing these dreams or taking a stab at it on your podcast
0: when you don't have the client there in front of you and their history and their struggles? Well, of course, Jung said that you cannot analyze a dream without the dreamer there. So we're breaking the cardinal rule. However, and so did Jung. <laughs> yeah,
2: <laughs> yeah, of course, of course. He has a whole volume where he didn't know the dreamer. So,
1: <laughs> but there's so much symbolism, right? That's the whole. The, exactly. You're, you're, there's so much rich information. Talk to us a little bit about what you're using in those.
0: Well, contexts. so I want to say just a couple things. First of all, when we were in training, we were sometimes given this exercise. Okay, right. Here's the dream. Dreamer's the 35 year old man. Go. And I was always just gobsmacked at how much we could get out of the dream. And then sometimes the teaching analyst would say, yeah, and here's the life situation. And it and it's like, you know, oh, my God. So it, you can tell a lot from the symbolism. And I also do want to share that when – dreamers submit the dream to the podcast they do usually provide just a little bit of a life situation so you know i just broke up with my girlfriend and i'm really sad about it and and so that can kind of help us orient but we are going off what's inherent in the dream it is a language symbolism is a language and we can often learn a lot about someone by looking at the dream it's a, it's a little bit like a psychic x-ray And I don't want to make it sound magical, but then again, it kind of is. (laughs) What are some of the things that you're looking for in
1: the dream?
2: Well, we start with, this is my particular place of fascination, of oftentimes uh, the dream setting, just the situation. I'm making this up in this moment, but I was in a restaurant with my spouse and a couple of friends It's a restaurant in our neighborhood, and then the meal came, and it was simply terrible. Well, there's the psychic situation. You're in a place where you're supposed to be served something good. It's in your neighborhood. You're with people you care about, and the food is terrible. Huh. Now, is that happening somewhere in your life where it would seem that the situation is pleasant? and rewarding and transactional because you're going to pay for a meal. And then somehow something comes up where that isn't the case. And then we'll take a look at then what happens, that the dream ego sends the food back or everybody eats it or they have a protest and say they're not going to pay for the meal or they go somewhere else. What happens next and how does it move? And is that familiar, in alignment, or not? But there's a little story there. And then finally, what happens at the end? Or sometimes nothing happens. So the story is not, not complete. But I think basically we're working with three things. One is affect, or feeling. The other is image. And the third is the narrative. And we are wired for all three of those things. We are wired for feeling, image, and story. And that's the ancient language. And then we can add explanation. So the example of the restaurant. What is a restaurant? Well, it's a place where you get served food that you've ordered and it's supposed to be good.
1: Mm Mm-hmm.
0: Jung said, and I, I wholeheartedly agree, that you know that most of the time when he hears a dream, he, the first thing he thinks is, I have no idea what this dream means. And it happens so often, even after all of these years of working with dreams, that a client brings in a dream and tells me the dream, and I think, I have no idea what this dream means. And so we, we do just kind of walk through it. Like Deb said, we start with the setting. The setting often shows you the psychological situation and it may kind of show you what the dream is about as well. So if the setting takes place in your office, not, not that most of us go to an office anymore, but once upon a time, we used to go to offices, and then it might be about work. If it takes place in the bedroom, it might be about your marriage. That's a little cookie cutter, but it can give you a hint, depending on where you are. That That's one thing. And then you work through the major images in the dream, And in a Jungian understanding of the dream, the most common way we understand the dream is that it is commenting on the inner world. So that if your third grade teacher is in your dream, it is not a dream about your third grade teacher. It is a dream where your dream maker picked your third grade teacher to personify an aspect of your personality. So therefore, someone brings me a dream and it's got their third grade teacher in it. I would say, tell me about your third grade teacher. And I'm not really looking for 18 minutes of stories about the third grade teacher. I'm wondering, what's the main thing? What's the essence? Oh, she was the one who understood that you actually had a learning disability and helped you get tested and remediated for that or whatever. Okay, well, that's really important. So then we have a sense of what that might be in the psyche and we do that for every element to really go through an involved dream, it can take a whole session. And like Deb said, we're guided also by feelings, what, what are the feelings in the dream? Are they positive? Are they negative? We don't always trust them. Because again, They're likely allied with the uh, dream ego attitude, which is defending against things. But the quality of the feelings can maybe give us a hint about what might be the new thing and what might be being defended against and what we ought to let in. And as Deb also said, we, we look at the story. So we look at how the different parts are related to one another. It is a bit of an art And it's not always the case that working on a dream reveals this clear sense of what it is. Jung talked about, I don't know that he used this word, but he did talk about the aha moment. So if you're working on a dream with your analyst, or maybe with someone else, or even just on your own, and you come to this understanding of like, oh, that's what it's about, you can sort of feel it in your body like a click. So it's a slow process. It's a kind of recursive process where you you look at the images from many different ways you may amplify the images with material from myths or fairy tales that can sometimes open something right up and you can really understand something at a deeper level and then and then you know that this is a dream that's informed by the collective unconscious
1: it's interesting you should say that like the the aha moment I'm thinking about. I, I Before we jumped on, I told you that I found the two of you through a recommendation of my analyst. And some of the most powerful work I've done is with her with dream work. And, and it sneaks up. It's not every session. It's not the only thing I'm doing in session. I'm having sort of deep talk, body-oriented therapy. But these dreams will come into the work and it is exactly how you described it, Lisa. It's just this like... As we're going through the setting and the essence and the, you you reminded me of, you said, what is the association with third grade teacher? You may not have thought about your third grade teacher since third grade. So why is all of a sudden your third grade teacher appearing in your dream and to slow down and give it some room and like, what's your association? Just in my experience of even going through the process of having that association, all of a sudden, as I'm talking, I can feel myself having the aha. It's not even the analysis that's coming down the road, right? It's like, oh my God, as I'm saying it, you know, maybe I'm stuck at work or something and and this process of somebody discovering something or believing something or seeing something in me comes out, if that example I don't just But it's it really is an aha, isn't it?
0: Yeah, Jung said something, I'm paraphrasing him, but he said this several times, dreams always tell us something we didn't know. And Think about that. Dreams always tell us something we didn't know. So if you wake up and, and you're like, oh, I had a dream about my terrible boss. Yeah, my boss is terrible. Well, you probably haven't understood the dream. The dream is using, most likely, using your boss to tell you something about yourself, or perhaps the dream is using that image to highlight something about that relationship that you maybe weren't aware of before. But it's not the attitude you went to sleep with because the dream always brings something new. Wow,
1: that's really a powerful way to express that that it's because it's it's holding us in suspension that we're just always I think there's some belief that you're just always working through something in your dream as if it's a conflict that needs to be worked out. But The way that y'all are are describing it is I can really get a deeper feeling that this is a path, like to open up to the path, not make the assumption about what the conflict is, that there's a
0: bigger path that's being talked about. Yes, yes, I think that's true, that we may not know what the conflict is. We may not know what the problem is. You know, dreams, one way to think about dreams is that they are problem-solving vehicles, and the problem is always the ego attitude, and you probably didn't know that your ego attitude was a problem,
1: For those out there that might not understand the concept of ego, what would an ego attitude be?
2: Well, we work pretty hard starting very early, early on to develop an ego, a sense of I starting with the famous so-called terrible twos. And we work very hard to have that be strong, flexible, stable, especially in the first half of life when we have to go through all kinds of life events and grow up and meet developmental challenges and then get ourselves out in the world. So it's our conscious attitude.
1: So it's not always our conscious attitude that we're really addressing.
2: But it's also kind of a complex. So, you know, there we are. We tend to get a little bit encapsulated in our I and what I think, and this is what I know. You know, I like this and I don't like that. We have to make all these decisions, and we get ourselves in a little box, which is why we want to do dream work or, you know, other methods of accessing the unconscious, Because like Lisa was saying, dreams tell us something that we don't know. Of that pursuer really just wanted to talk to you. We speak on the podcast
1: about the idea of being in the known is often where we want to stay sometimes to be able to avoid the unknown. Like to be in the unknown can be anxiety producing. It can be scary. And sometimes if we stay in the known, we're blocking ourselves from what could be in the unknown, the beauty of that, that that it is actually a place of more security to be in, open to the unknown, to be able to know that there's so much out there and to not be so sure. So I love the way you're describing this, like, like so opening ourselves up to our dream is another way of opening up ourselves to the unknown out there
0: about ourselves, to not be so confident, to not to be. Absolutely. A dream work is very, very humbling. <laughs> It really is. Yeah.
2: And we work so hard to get a good, stable ego. We don't really want a whole heck of a lot of critical input. You know, that's what Lisa was saying is the dream ego. You know, we say, okay, somebody was chasing me down the street. Whew, I woke up. You know, thank God that's over. We don't want that to be punctured, threatened, contradicted. We've worked hard to get to this place of knowing.
1: So there's kind of almost this resistance to like, why would I go there? It's over. And you're inviting people in this process to say there's so much rich there and that to really grow into the full tree, to go back to the metaphor that we use at the beginning, like opening up to this part of this process, to this path is just there. And it's for our ability to go in. And I I noticed that I know sometimes, at least for me personally, I go through periods of time where I don't remember my dreams at all, right? And I know I've met people who said, no, I don't dream. Like, I don't have any dreams. And I've gone through periods where I can't remember my dreams. And then I go through a period where I'm thinking about them, and I start to decide I really want to open up to that part of myself. And it's miraculous how all of a sudden I start remembering my dreams. Is that common?
2: Well, there's a, a sort of a famous saying about turning a friendly face to the unconscious. So, when we're open to it, the dream maker tends to rise up. The dream maker wants to be listened to and wants to be paid attention to. But we defend against dreams. The other way that people defend against a dream all the time is oh, I had a dream. You know, I just got up and I thought I'd make coffee and then I'd sit down, it was gone or we wake up with a dream and we say well, you know, I'll remember but I'll I'll get to it a little later and it's gone. Oh, that so, happens so easily. Yeah, know, we want we want to be in touch with our dreams and we don't want to be in touch with our dreams. <laughs> it's kind of like going into analysis. I really want to learn more about myself sort of But only only the good stuff. Just bring me (laughs) skip the shadow stuff. Just give me the good stuff.
0: (laughs) Yeah, but I do think that you know, you buy a dream journal, you put it on your bedside table. And lo and behold, you're more likely to remember your dreams. Another thing that we offer in addition to the podcast is we have an online course, where we help you learn to work with your dreams. It's called dream school. And that is job one, is helping people remember their dreams. And then we kind of walk you through, now that you remember them, what are you going to do with them? Recalling dreams, that's something we get a lot of questions about. So we will, for listeners out there, we will
1: put uh, their website in the show notes so if you're interested in the dream school and listening to the podcast you'll be able to track it there and i'd like to spend a little time for those there's a lot of people are not going to be able to have somebody to sit with in an office that's going to unfold these dreams for them and so i really appreciate you having access is what i love about podcasting because we get beyond the therapeutic moment i know we've been talking a lot about how to do this in session But knowing that there's lots of resources out there for you to learn to start opening up if you may be already doing it and you want to deepen it, or maybe dream work is something you've been curious about, and that there is a lot you can do to unfold it for yourself and that you can open up to be curious. And I love that y'all have this resource out there that somebody, you know, in any part of the country can hopefully access or tune into on some level.
2: Absolutely, anybody can develop a relationship with, with dreams. Sometimes people do a lot of journaling. They write the dream down, and then they may journal about the dream of the tree that was in the dream, or the dream setting, or some of the characters in the dream. That can fill pages as you sort of uh, sink into it a little bit. And there's a sense I think often about how dreams are some sort of you know arcane, esoteric mystery thing. And yes, there's an art and yes, there's a lot to learn, and yes, your dreams are there for you. And people form dream groups in dream school, people form dream groups and share their dreams and find it incredibly helpful. So this is not something where there's some kind of long, secret, dark passageway. (laughs) You know, this is, they're your dreams and it's your psyche and it's not meant to be, you know, opaque. So learning to open up to it is by,
1: by tracking it, by rating it, by logging in, just learning to open up to it. As y'all mentioned before the setting, what is the essence? Knowing individual people that come up in your dreams, kind of exploring, what does that person mean? These are things that we can really kind of practice on our own. Are there any other recommendations that y'all would have for somebody out there going, I really want to make more of my dreams that you would have for them?
0: Well, I do want to add that Jung said that one of the purposes of analysis was to make the analysand kind of fluent in understanding his or her dreams. So he really thought that that was one of the goals that we should all be able to know how to work with our dreams and i and i also know it is harder to work with my dreams than to work with anyone Mm -hmm. else's so working with your own dreams is hard but it can yield really rich dividends so we have we have dream school we're we are actually the three of us are actually writing a book that will be published by sounds true in 2024 And I'm super excited about this book. Deb and I were just talking about it earlier today because I think it's really going to break it down and make it very bite-sized, very easy for people to learn how to work with their dreams. That's what we really want to do because it is a gift to be able to have this relationship with the unconscious.
1: Could you share for our listeners out there maybe some common themes that there's the dream of falling, there's the dream, like is there any... I know for me, when I was waiting tables, even years and years and years after waiting tables, I would have the dreams of being in the weeds and I couldn't get to that table and I could see it, but I just couldn't get it. And I kept trying. And I know there's common themes like that. Would y'all speak about a few common themes of maybe being chased, what they mean,
0: flying? Sure. I'll take a first whack at it. One of the dreams that I hear most often is very similar actually to Joseph's dream, That you're at home, and you hear someone rattling at the door, or you see someone peering in through the window, or you realize that you're trying to lock the door and you can't get the door locked, or someone's on the other side of the door and you know they're going to get in, or they've come in. And I think that this dream is often an image of some unconscious content that wants to get your attention that you are defended against, therefore it is frightening, But as we saw with Joseph's dream, it doesn't necessarily need to be frightening. It's almost always not actually threatening. And so the thing is to get curious about it and say, oh, I wonder what wants to come in. I wonder what it wants to teach me.
2: And I'm partly going back to your question about some resources. And and one of the resources that is wonderful and is such a good deal uh, for the price is something called the Book of Symbols. And it's almost 400 pages worth of all the weather, animals, you name it, kinds of symbols that are alive in the collective unconscious. It's published by Taschen, T-A-S-C-H-E-N. And it has uh, the image of a hand on the cover, so you can get it online. And those are themes that run through the course of human history that come up all the time in dreams. And Lisa and I were starting to make a list because we thought for our book that we might have an appendix listing some of the very common dream themes, hair and teeth and cars and houses and animals of all kinds, and water, people dream of lakes and beaches and Boats, and <laughs> it, it, it's a very, very long list. Wow, okay, uh, that's a great resource. And then the question is, and then what happens? You know, was the water dark? Was it, you know, the color of the Caribbean Sea? Was it a wonderful, refreshing experience? Or was it something else that was unwelcome? So is what does it do in your dream? And this goes back to what Lisa was saying too about the collective unconscious. Everybody dreams about these things. They're pretty universal symbols. And I think about the car as the mechanical successor to the horse. <laughs> we even talk about horsepower. But there are so many symbols that the dream maker can grab hold of to image something and infuse it with feeling. So finding the
1: idea of the image, and there's all these resources out there to be able to make contact with what these have, maybe collectively, symbolically represent in our bigger psyche. And then what is the process? How are those symbols being used? What is the action? What's the, the symbol? What's the meaning in your own personal life with that symbol?
2: You know, one of the surprising ones, and we did a podcast on it, is the alligator or crocodile. Here we are, you know, most of us don't live in any kind of close proximity to these creatures. So people from, you know, Wisconsin and Canada dream about alligators. That's so interesting. When they've had no
1: access to it, and yes, they still dream. And no, that's so powerful, really, really powerful. What does falling represent? I know that
0: obviously it means something different depending on what's going on for that individual. It would depend you know, very much, I think on what's going on, but it can represent a situation where maybe the ego has become a little too full of itself. And it needs to be knocked down a peg. It might be something like that. Or it could be sometimes if you're kind of falling to your death, or you're experiencing your death in a dream. uh, You know, that's obviously a very frightening dream. But it, it can often indicate that some aspect of you needs to die, maybe an attitude, a way of looking at the world some version of yourself that you've been holding on to.
2: Oh, wow. And this is where amplification can come in handy of what does falling mean archetypally in mythology? Well, you know, Adam and Eve getting booted out of the Garden of Eden is known as the fall. Icarus, who flew too high and fell to his death, that's another example of falling. So we don't have to rely only on personal experience. This goes to some of what we do on the podcast because falling has a mythological base that's been featured in you know many a fairy tale and myth. So that's a powerful step for a lot of people,
1: isn't it? We've spoken quite a bit about the collective unconscious and that's a powerful step, this idea that we have a larger sense of collectiveness rather than our own personal journey, just our own plight.
0: Well, I think the powerful thing about that is it really uh, very viscerally shows how universal our problems are. And that is tremendously comforting and even healing. So the truth is that when we're human and it, it doesn't matter what our skin color is, it doesn't matter what part of the world we live in, it doesn't matter if we're a human living in twenty twenty three or a human living in, you know, two thousand years ago, the human experience is universal and that we have more in common than when than there are differences. You know, for me, this issue about the healing nature of recognizing in a very deep way the universality of our experience and our suffering is illustrated by that beautiful Buddhist parable of the mustard seed. So there was a woman whose child died and she was just bereft and she wanted to try to find a way to bring her child back. So she went to the Buddha and she said, please, please, can you bring my child back to life? And Buddha said, "Uh, yes, I can if you bring me uh, some mustard seed from the home of someone who has never known trouble or grief. So she started knocking on every door. And as you can imagine, she couldn't find one house that hadn't been troubled by grief. And she went back to Buddha and said in so many words, I get it. (laughs) This is just part of the human experience. And so whatever we're going through to recognize that our pain is uh, our situation is the same maybe as a fairy tale heroine a story that's you know 3000 years old in its roots or to see those themes played out over time and across cultures powerfully connects us with other people and lets us know we're not alone.
1: Hmm. And just taking a moment for everybody to let that sink in that was beautifully said. And the idea that we're not alone is probably one of the most important aspects of building a sense of self and community, isn't it? In, in security in oneself is to know that our suffering, that we're not alone and our successes, we're not alone, we're not the greatest, we're not the worst, you know, like that just there's a, the importance of feeling connected and that our goal in our dream work that y'all are really pointing out, it's not just for us to have our own period of success. It's for us to really grow in the deepest senses that we can grow. And in doing so we're growing for all of us around. We're asking a lot of ourselves to, to stand up and live to our best self for those around us, not just for our own personal gain. But that's really powerful thought that we're not alone in our grief and our suffering and our things that are coming up for us to tune in and to use others to connect it's part of the human journey. It really, really is. Well, you guys have been wonderful. Is there anything I haven't... Well, there's a thousand things that I haven't asked you. But is there anything related to the process of dreams that I haven't asked that you're just dying to mention before we get off?
2: I just hope that maybe we have encouraged people to be curious. Get a notebook. Keep it by your bedside table. Because uh, there is an other who creates things every night for you to know that can be very, very useful, deepening, comforting, confronting, and it's there anyway.
1: I like that point. I think we need to really, Deborah. we need to really, it's there. Whether you decide to pay attention to what's being communicated, it's really there, isn't it?
2: And one of the few things we really have control over from an ego point of view in our lives is what we pay attention to. So I'm hoping we've spurred some interest in paying attention to dreams. I love that. Anything for you, Lisa?
0: No, I think Deborah said it best. She said it
1: beautifully. All right. Thank you guys so much for joining us. I think you really have spurred interest And for those of you out there that have your interest, um, peaked a little bit, check out the show notes and find their podcast, This Union Life and look for, and then the book that's coming out. I'm very, very excited about the book because for anyone out there, they can really gain and like, ah, I can do this. I can start remembering my dreams and see what comes in, in the future for me. So that's very exciting. Well, thank you guys for joining us. If uh, what you heard today means something to you, you feel like you've grown, pass it on so other people can be motivated by their dreams as well. And if you take a moment to rate and review us, that always helps other people find us. Thanks so much, and we'll see you around the bin.
0: Therapist Uncensored is Ann Kelly and Sue Marriott. This podcast is edited by Jack Anderson.